This week, the Chinese spy balloon was still flying across the news feeds. But how to comprehend a spectacle that's both worrying... Quite frankly, I'll just tell you, I, I don't want a damn balloon going across the United States. And totally absurd? Everyone's being surveilled constantly, but it's always shoot the balloon and never unplug Alexa. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Also, when investigative reporter Christo Grozev got a lead on who poisoned Alexei Navalny, he took it straight to the source. Christo just sent him a direct message on Twitter. He DM'd him. He, de- he slid into the DMs <laughs> of the it's leader so prosaic. of the Russian opposition. That's right. Plus, rereading the Russian classics in a time of war. What I came to realize in my late 30s is that, of course, nothing is free from ideology. That These novels are products of a time and place in history. It's all coming up after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Many reports this week on the intelligence-gathering capabilities of the headline-grabbing Chinese balloon, apparently part of a fleet. On Thursday afternoon, the House of Representatives gathered at the Capitol to vote to condemn the Chinese Communist Party for flying it over U.S. soil. As an Alaskan, I am so angry. I want to use other words but I'm not going to. The fact of the matter is, Alaska is the first line of defense for America, right? I don't want a damn balloon going across the United States when we potentially could have taken it down over the Aleutian Islands or in some of the areas in Montana. This incident is greatly concerning to me, not just because of the breach of our airspace, but what it signals about our relationship with China, the strength, of our diplomacy and really the state of our domestic capabilities. The House unanimously voted to condemn just a week after the balloon was first sighted by civilians and just a day after the State Department announced that the balloon had antennas that were, quote, likely capable of collecting and geolocating communications, meaning data from mobile phones and radios. The outrage over the balloon was first ignited when a local news reporter snapped a photo of it over Montana on February 1st. And then the story blew up. The balloon. The balloon. The balloon. The balloon. The Chinese balloon. So where did the balloon come from? February 4th, just three days after it was snapped, it was felled. The balloon was so high up when it was destroyed, the sound of the blast took several seconds to reach the ground. Listen to this. On Saturday Night Live, Bowen Yang was that punctured balloon. Look, I'm sorry, but people were worried they were being spied on. By me? A balloon? Everyone's being surveilled constantly, but it's always shoot the balloon and never unplug Alexa. (laughs) If you care so much about your data, why do you all keep your bank passwords in the notes app? So was it a real threat? Or just the moral equivalent of the creepy clown from Stephen King's It? Come on up, Richie. I got a balloon for you. (laughs) John Alsop writes Columbia Journalism Review's newsletter, The Media Today. He says the balloon's coverage illustrates the difficulty of regarding something as both concerning and absurd at the same time. Though shouldn't we be used to that by now? John, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The commentary was satirical, breathless, punny, 
And it reminded you a little bit of the coverage back in November 2020, right after the election, when Rudy Giuliani appeared at the Four Seasons, which in this case was a Philadelphia landscaping company. And in fact, he was sort of outside in the parking lot. He recited a few uh, unsubstantiated claims about dead people voting in Philadelphia. You almost couldn't tell he was at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping, except for the big yellow reel of hose off to the side. It reminded me of that because it sort of had this aesthetic as a news story that was two things at once. Rudy Giuliani in the parking lot at the Four Seasons was objectively hilarious. And yet he was, I don't want to even say laying the foundation because I think it was more advanced at that point. That's another pun, by the way. (laughs) A landscaping pun. I didn't even realize I was making that one. (laughs) But it was a step towards something that became incredibly dark and scary. Sometimes news stories can be all of those things at once. There is something, I think, inherently funny in everyone following this literal balloon across the sky and the avalanche of memes about it. And and puns in otherwise serious news coverage would probably suggest that there is something absurd about it. But obviously, at root, the story is a very serious one and certainly ties into a very serious, broader story about tensions between two of the most powerful countries on Earth. And you also noticed a streak of really scare-raising coverage of the balloon across the political spectrum. Yeah. So you have Donald Trump shouting on Truth Social, shoot down the balloon. And then you have the New York Post a couple of days later with a front page headline with big capital letters to similar effect. Obviously, you know, as well as playing into their preferred narratives about the huge threat of China, it was an opportunity to bash Biden for perceived weakness for not following their instructions sooner, even though I think the White House laid out pretty clear reasons why they weren't going to shoot it down while people might be in harm's way. Yeah, it was a couple of thousand pounds and as big as three buses. I've seen a lot of comparisons to buses. (laughs) How long is a piece of string? How big is a bus? That might be a a question you have to ask. But certainly when it eventually was shot down over the ocean, the debris from the balloon had scattered across a really large area. And so the idea that you could be confident of bringing that down over inhabited land, even in a relatively less densely populated place without hurting anyone, seems to me kind of spurious. But you did see that kind of tough talk in right-wing media and among right-wing politicians, as you would expect. But I think you also saw it as well in mainstream coverage. You know, you could hear voices on CNN expressing, if not explicit, then certainly implied bemusement about the fact that Biden and his administration hadn't shot the balloon down sooner. You mentioned CNN. It fell on one of its old tropes, having the armchair generals in to talk about the military aspects of this and bringing in a a Cold War style perspective they were trained on and how they view the world. Why did we let a potential adversary air vehicle penetrate the sovereign territory of Canada, the United States? It should have been neutralized as it entered our air defense identification zone. Yeah, you saw four-star generals and pundits with deep ties in the military-industrial CNN complex. None of this is to say that that strain of coverage about the balloon was entirely illegitimate, but I think it was put across in a way that was kind of hair-raising and over-the-top and unnuanced. But beyond that, I think the visibility talks to a second dimension of this, which is maybe this is a human impulse, maybe it's only a sort of human impulse in the age of cable news, but people just seem to love following stuff on TV. I wrote in my newsletter that it brought to mind the O.J. Bronco chase. We're going to go to a live picture in Los Angeles. Police believe that that O.J. Simpson is in that car. Many pundits pointed out that it brought to mind the coverage of the Balloon Boy incident in, I think, 2009, when there was a balloon over Colorado that supposedly contained a young child. What you all see right there is an experimental aircraft that inside of which is a six-year-old boy who got into that aircraft and accidentally launched it. It turned out to have been a hoax. But, you know, a story is fundamentally a movement from A to B, be that metaphorical or literal. And I think when it's literal, people love following it. And it's a great story for cable news. It's that episodic thing. There's a balloon. It's Chinese. What's going to happen? Look, it's, it's going to move. <laughs> but despite what you call the unbearable lightness of the coverage of the balloon, there were some measurable consequences. Secretary of State... Tony Blinken's canceled a trip to Beijing due to what he called a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. 
Can you tell me more about that fallout? It did have a number of very concrete consequences, not least diplomatically, as you mentioned. The Biden administration since then, including Biden himself, have tried to play down the idea that they're trying to ratchet up tensions. But there have been some pretty aggrieved statements from the Chinese government as well. So clearly there is tension over this, as you would expect. And it's opened up this public conversation about Chinese surveillance, not just of the US, but other parts of the world. Yeah, I've seen Taiwanese reports that they've seen Chinese balloons parked over the equivalent of their White House. And these Taiwanese scientists also noted that the balloons can pinpoint missile locations, which would make our ICBMs easier to take out in a first strike. I think that's really meant to be scary because, you know, the idea of first strikes is kind of hair on fire. So in the wake of the fervor over the balloon, does the incident tell us anything about China's intelligence strategy? Just before we spoke, there was this statement from the US government saying that the balloon was capable of collecting communications signals and saying that the capabilities of the balloon were, quote, inconsistent with the equipment on board weather balloons, which was the official Chinese explanation for what this was. So there's that. But obviously, it sort of extends beyond balloons. Even other big stories that have been in the news recently have to do with a similar area, right? I mean, there's this big story about TikTok being a potential security threat to the US, which is now a really long running story and one that I think has at least some degree of bipartisan buy-in because TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. And although TikTok has strongly denied it, there have been reports that US user data from TikTok has been accessed in Beijing. And then and obviously, then there are concerns that, that if a company is able to access US user data in China, then it would not be a big step beyond that for the Chinese government to get access as well. So clearly, this is just a very visible up in the sky manifestation of something that is a much bigger story. So the balloon, despite being shot down, continues to make headlines. Marjorie Taylor Greene was walking around Capitol Hill with a balloon like a kid at a carnival saying it was the number one thing that the president needed to address in the State of the Union that night. And on Wednesday, American officials shared that the spy balloon program is part of a surveillance plan to collect intelligence on the militaries of countries around the world. As more news about the balloon emerges, how can listeners tell what to take seriously and what to ignore Well, if somebody's walking around the halls of Congress carrying a physical balloon, I would say that's a pretty clear indication that they and that should not be taken seriously. I think my guidance to the extent that I have any would be to at least question anything that seems like hype or untrammeled outrage or that seems to be lacking in nuance or a different perspective. Congressman uh, James Comer, head of the House Oversight Committee, said, we don't know that balloon could be carrying a bioweapon from Wuhan. Some CNN interviewer said, is there any evidence? He goes, I'm just asking questions. Yeah, we've seen that one before. A lot of questions that don't end up having answers or answers that aren't. No, that's not a thing. (laughs) John, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. John Alsop is a journalist and author of the newsletter, The Media Today, for the Columbia Journalism Review. Coming up, as Russian dissident Alexei Navalny languishes in prison, his message is being amplified by an Oscar-nominated documentary. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz 
to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Updates trickle in from Alexei Navalny's prison, where the Russian opposition leader has been confined since January of 2021. Well, today, Navalny's lawyer says he's being moved to an even harsher solitary confinement facility for a maximum period of six months. This is a seven to eight feet concrete cell. Eleven times in a row he's been sent there. And you are not allowed to lay down during the daytime because your bed is fastened to the wall. Vladimir Putin and the Federal Penalty Service and are slowly torturing and killing my father. In August of 2020, Navalny fell violently sick on a flight between Siberia and Moscow. But a flight forced to make an emergency landing. Groaning can be heard in this unconfirmed cell phone video. Mr. Navalny is in a coma after a suspected poisoning. He was flown to Germany after initially being treated at a Siberian hospital. His supporters and his wife say he was intentionally poisoned, but Russian doctors said no suspicious substance was found. Alexei Navalny survived, thin and gaunt, in a German hospital bed. This picture taken soon after he came round from a coma. Germany and France have announced plans to sanction those they blame for the poisoning of Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny. The country's foreign ministers say Moscow has failed to provide answers about the attempted murder. In the months following Navalny's poisoning, Christo Grozev, lead Russian investigator at Bellingcat, was stuck in Vienna with filmmaker Daniel Rohr. The two had just been booted from Ukraine, where they'd been trying to film an investigation. So now Grozev had a lot of time on his hands, a laptop, and a fresh stack of data from the Russian black market. So, naturally... Christo walked into a meeting we were having one day and said, very quietly, as if he was divulging a state secret, that he thinks he has a lead in who tried to poison Navalny. Daniel Rohr directed the documentary Navalny, which portrays the story of the close collaboration between Navalny, his team, and Grozev in the hunt for the dissidents' would-be killers. The film has since been nominated for an Oscar. I decided to take this approach, which was, uh, let's look for a bottleneck in the Russian system of state assassinations, somebody that they have to go through. Who would that be? in every assassination because we had previous data from previous overseas attempts to poison people. And that's the sort of assassination you mean? A yes. poisoning, not, poisoning, in, not yes. in Anna Palatkovskaya-type assassination? No, no. Poisoning is something that Putin loves. We knew that Navalny had been poisoned with Novichok. Novichok is... Is a nerve agent. And this is his preferred method in previous investigations the Russian double agent? What would you call Skripal? Sergei Skripal. He, right. He was a double spy because he worked for Russia's military intelligence, yeah. but he was working also for the Brits. Skripal went to London to Correct. live and was pursued, as you determined, by Russian thugs that used Putin's favorite poison to do him in. That is true. And others. So that became kind of an interesting data point for us because we knew the scientists who had manufactured and given the Novichok nerve agent to those thugs who went to the UK. So when we were looking at the Navalny poisoning, we thought, well, they must have used the same scientists. They can't have like hundreds of scientists who do this. This has to be kept top secret. These people have to take the risk to manufacture this toxin. So I started looking at the phone records of these scientists and we bought them on the Russian markets where you can buy absolutely any kind of data. We started looking at whether these scientists did something strange in their communication around the days on which Navalny was poisoned. And lo and behold, we did find something strange. They were talking to this cluster of secret service officers from the FSB, from Russia's domestic service, in the 10 days before the poisoning. And then at the night of his poisoning, there was a peak of communication. Is that when you went to Daniel? That is exactly when I went to Daniel, mm -hmm. because only a couple of days later, we found the second smoking gun, which was that these FSB thugs that had communicated with the scientists had actually traveled for four years 
always in the vicinity of where Navalny was going. So then we knew that we have the proof. I said to Christo, who's making that movie? And he says, I don't know. Should I ask him? Ask Navalny. As we say in the film, Christo just sent him a direct message on Twitter. He DM'd him. He he slid into the DMs (laughs) of the leader of the Russian opposition. That's right. And I know that uh, your DMs were met, Christo, with something less than enthusiasm by Navalny's people. Well, Navalny himself was enthusiastic. We understand in the background that his advisors, and especially Maria, who we've grown to love, but at the time she was very, very hard to work with. Maria Pevchik, yes. Mm -hmm. She had been advising Navalny that, well, you have to be careful. I mean, who knows, maybe... Crystal works for the CIA, maybe he works for MI6. We don't know if you all vote spies. But anyway, it worked out. I had the call. At the end of that call, I said, hey, can I bring a couple of guys and this young director? We want to make a film while we're doing this investigation together. My focus in that first meeting was to present Navalny and his team with a very low-risk, high-reward proposition. Mm -hmm. And that was the following. This investigation is unfolding in real time. You will never have another chance to capture it, to document it. Let's just start shooting. We don't have to sign any paperwork. We don't have to make a deal. Let's just start shooting. Mm -hmm. And if you like the work we do, then we'll continue working together. And if you don't, you can take the footage and we'll walk away. And you can do whatever you want with it. And so for them, it was like, okay, you're right. Let's start shooting. And we did the next day. One very successful conceit of the film is this sort of moment out of time that he has periodically in the bar with you on the other side of the camera and him staring directly into it. It's got incredible intimacy. At the same time, it's like he's outside his own life for a moment. We shot that interview three days preceding his eventual return to Moscow. And so it had this sense of, all right, What do you have to get off your chest because you're not going to be able to speak to the world again for a long while? We shot probably 15 hours of interview over three days. I had no idea in that moment how this interview would be weaved into the film. I had an instinct that it wouldn't even make it into the movie. I thought that this film wanted to be a propulsive, in-the-room, verite political thriller. And it's only when we started editing the film that months elapsed from the last time I had seen Navalny, you know, six or seven months since the world had seen him or heard from him, that I understood the historic value of this interview. Mm-hmm. This is the guy's last appearance. This is I was the last person he spoke to. I think you made the right decision. I understand you're not wanting to mess with the forward motion of the film, but the Stakes get higher the closer we feel to the protagonist. I mean, it's a, it's a nature of drama, and you really did that. You also played with time in a lot of ways. You flash back to the Navalny before the poisoning, this young, promising, charismatic lawyer with his flamboyant social media presence and huge following on YouTube and TikTok and had knack for riling up the crowds against Putin. If I want to fight Putin, if I want to be a leader of a country, I have to do something practical about it. Well, uh, I have to kind of organize people. Navalny knew he was becoming notable in the eyes of the Kremlin as he was banned from newspapers and rallies and, and so forth. And yet with all that, Navalny seemed to become more confident that he wouldn't be targeted. He thought that his profile and his fame and his notoriety would protect him in a way. I was totally sure that my life became safer and safer because I'm a kind of famous guy. And it will be problematic for them just to kill me. And boy, were you wrong. Yes, I was very wrong. Then the Kremlin struck. He was poisoned on a flight between Tomsk in Siberia and Moscow and was saved only by an emergency landing. The documentary shows harrowing footage of his wife, Yulia, arriving at a crappy apartment building where Navalny was sent. 
filled with agents and police rather than doctors. Eventually, a charity German flight sent Navalny to Vienna, where he steadily got better. So, Christo, you were knee-deep in investigation into the poisoning, and you convinced Navalny that you would be able to identify the men. So they provided the data of how Navalny had traveled to what locations. I matched it to the known travel data of the poisoners and spies. And we saw this pattern. Essentially, a group of six to eight FSB poisoners had been tailing him for more than four years to a total of 66 different towns and cities during his presidential campaign and later after that during his anti-corruption work. It was interesting because he brought his wife, Yulia, when I was presenting this, and he said, look at these guys that Christo has found. Uh, Haven't you seen this guy? Yeah, I think this was the guy in Kaliningrad where we were just two weeks before the poisoning and so on and so forth. And then there's the jaw-dropping moment in the film where Navalny essentially prank calls the would-be murderers and the chemists involved in formulating the Novichok. Yeah, it was early in the morning when we did the sequence of calls. Alexei Navalny calling his would-be killers and asking them one by one, why did you try to kill me? What have I done to you? That was kind of a Mm -hmm. sarcastic Mm -hmm. uh, plot that he had. It was boring. Everybody was hanging up. So then at one point he decided to change gear and to prank one of them. And he turned to me and said, who do you think will be the dumbest of these people that I can prank? And he was like pointing to this suspect chart on the wall. And I said, I don't know about dumbest, but somebody who may not be trained in avoiding such pranks, maybe one of the scientists. And this one looks both dumb and a scientist, so why don't you call him? That was Kudryavtsev, and he called him, and it worked. Navalny poses as an aide to a former FSB chief, And he talks about having received the number of the chemist from the head of the FSB's Special Technology Center. And then he gets all urgent. How did the mission go awry, he asks Konstantin. He asks exactly how the poisoning was carried out. And that's when the infamous blue underwear comes into the conversation. We get to see your jaws eventually dropping on the table, not the least Navalny's aide Maria's jaw hitting the table. I mean, you guys, it's just electric. How did that feel? Ten minutes into the call, we started getting new names and new circumstances beyond what we had discovered ourselves. And then I knew, okay, this is for real. This guy is actually spilling the beans. And then over the next 50 minutes, it was a gamut of emotions that went through the surprise, then went through the feeling that we actually may have just caused the demise and the death of this spy because he's going to be punished. He can't be allowed to go unpunished. And then one of the feelings that both I and Maria shared that we experienced towards the end of the call was a feeling of doom that we kind of peaked in our journalistic career because we'll never get to see anything like this again. And so what was the view behind the camera? I don't speak a word of Russian. Mm. But when we were shooting that scene, I had very little expectations that anything meaningful would happen. We were up at 5 in the morning. We were shooting for probably an hour and a half before he got Kudrasov on the phone, and I was nearly falling asleep behind my camera. And that's when I saw one of the conversations was progressing longer than the other phone calls had. And then I saw Maria's jaw unhinge and hit the floor. (laughs) And this is a woman whose emotional range towards me up until this point had been mildly annoyed to very annoyed. So to see her experiencing this shock, and, and I could just see she was floored, and I just kept rolling. The other challenge was how to portray Navalny, not just as a political hero, but as a human being with flaws. I knew about his background and his associations with the far right and some anti-Semites, and I was waiting for that moment of pushback, and you provided it when you questioned him about marching with Nazis earlier in his career. Because a lot of politicians will be uncomfortable even associating or being in the same photograph with one of these guys. 
No, you're comfortable with that? I, I'm okay with that, and I'm, I consider it's, it's my political superpower. I can talk to everyone. Anyway, well, they are citizens of Russian Federation, and if I want to fight Putin, if I want to be a leader of a country, I cannot just ignore the huge part of it. Essentially, what he's saying is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and his singular focus is unseating this regime, relegating Vladimir Putin to the dustbins of history, and installing a democratic tradition in Russia. I've historically challenged Navalny over his foreplay with the extreme right. He says, I did it because I thought at that point in time, this is the best for Russian democracy. And you have to understand, we are now fighting against a single-party system. And when we get rid of it, we will then have a meaningful discussion on the subject, on the content of the platforms of different mm -hmm. parties. And then is the right time and the right place to challenge these Nazis or these extreme rights on their platforms. But it's not now. We first need to get rid of the one-party system. As you've observed, he's a master politician. He's unbelievably charismatic. He really understands social media. But I think the thing that struck me the most, he has a certain messianic quality, a sense of destiny. I think that's why he went back to Russia after having nearly been killed. Did you get a sense of the messianic either of you, from him? Uh, let me start. I, I did. It's clear. It has to be put in the context of the messianic proclivity of the Russian soul. Mm -hmm. A lot of my friends who are journalists in Russia, they have that messianic quality to themselves. I mean, they're doing a job that essentially puts their lives, their families' lives at risk at any given moment. I spoke with him and I spoke with his family at length about this plan to go back to Russia. And I alerted them, I thought, for the first time, to the risks of him going back. And they all said, we are aware of the risks. We know that Alexei will be jailed, and not for a week, not for a month, but for years. And I said, and you're fine with this? And the answer was, yes, because that's the only way for him to earn the trust of the Russian people for a time when he can actually go and run for president again. So it is messianic, no question about it. But I think societies are changed by a minority of the people that have messianic tendencies. <laughs> and what I often think about is whether or not Navalny would have been so keen to go back so quickly had this war in Ukraine already been launched. He went back about a year before the war started. His family was Ukrainian. They had to decamp from where he grew up after Chernobyl. That's right. And of course, now he is the single loudest anti-war advocate in Russia, which is why he is in a little solitary confinement cell, removed from the general prison population in what amounts to torturous conditions. He has no regard for his own longevity. His only, it seems, mission and ambition is to end this war, even as the regime is ratcheting up their torture towards him, which includes weaponizing other prisoners as biological weapons, sending in men with tuberculosis and a fever and COVID to try and get him sick. And then when he gets sick, they treat him with prison doctors and he's not informed of what his treatment is and he doesn't know what they're injecting him with. In the last, I think, two and a half weeks, he's lost about 15 pounds. And it's quite clear that the regime is trying to murder him in slow motion. It's interesting that he's still able to communicate with the world that the Russians are letting him continue to communicate with the world. It seems like the Russians are doing the maximum to look bad. We get to watch him die even as he exhorts us. What is the calculation, do you think? Navalny is very good at playing the foibles, the weaknesses of Putin, and he knows that Putin wants to indict him for more and more crimes. And each new indictment, and if we've seen four since he was incarcerated, now the latest one is he's accused of running an extremist organization from inside jail, the extremist organization being the anti-corruption fund that has been banned by Russia. But each of these new indictments brings the constitutional requirement for Alexei to meet with his lawyers. 
And each new meeting with the lawyers uh, brings him the opportunity to send a message in the mm-hmm. form of a handwritten note that is posted on Instagram and Twitter. So it becomes a vicious circle because each new message brings a new indictment and it brings back the lawyers. So that's how he's playing the system. We got the news in December, Christo. You are the first foreign national to be placed on Putin's most wanted list. You are Bulgarian. You have been in Vienna, not a very safe place to be. England isn't such a safe place to be. Where are you going to go? Fortunately, I have the excuse of needing to stay in the United States for a while because we're waiting for the Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm taking that opportunity to also teach a little bit here, investigative journalism. But you're right, I'm on the wanted list. And furthermore, I know that I'm on the kill list in addition to the wanted list. And therefore, I'll have to reconsider where my family lives, where I live. And I can't claim that I'm as messianic as a Russian. (laughs) But I still see that this is also a recognition of the effect of our investigations. And I see the positive side of that, too. Have you done any of your own research to look into your own case? That is literally what I'm working on at the moment, (laughs) looking for my would-be killers. It's one of the most surreal experiences to do that. It's almost like a doctor trying to cure themselves. Wow. How do you begin? They haven't left a trail like they did for Navalny years in advance. I'm looking for people. Well, I, I shouldn't be telling you because they will know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, let, let's talk about it after I catch them. Oh, boy. Christo Grozev, lead Russian investigator at Bellingcat, features in the film Navalny, directed by Daniel Rohr. Thank you both very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Coming up, reading Dostoevsky while war rages in Ukraine becomes a very different experience. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. In all but the most recent times, Russian imperialism has shaped how people outside of Ukraine have viewed that country, as dryly depicted in this scene from The Wire. You're Russian, right? No, Ukraine. Kiev is Ukraine. It's the same difference, though. This idea, of course, was the same one that Putin used as grounds for a full-scale invasion nearly a year ago. They are one people, he said. Their common culture, language and politics stretch back to the beginning of ancient Rus and more than a thousand years ago when Kiev, now the capital of Ukraine, was the regime's center of power. Mr. Putin has made very clear, actually for the past 10 years or so, that he doesn't believe that Ukrainians are a people. And he doesn't believe that the Ukrainian state is actually a real state. Those are the classic arguments that Europeans made for 500 years when they colonized other people. And he wants Ukraine to become part of his sphere of influence in perpetuity. But the effort to eliminate Ukrainian identity started long before Putin, as described in this video made for the Ukraine Crisis Media Center. The cultural genocide began with Tsar Peter I who in 1720 issued a decree banning book printing in Ukrainian language and removing Ukrainian texts from church books. In 1804, Emperor Alexander I banned all existing Ukrainian language schools. In her recent piece in The New Yorker, rereading Russian classics in the shadow of the Ukraine war, writer Elif Batman recounts a trip to Ukraine in 2019 to discuss two of her books, one a novel, one not, both with Dostoevsky in titles, The Possessed and The Idiot. She found herself learning that her beloved books that she believed transcended politics did not and could not. My idea of how I grew up during the Cold War was that, you know, I was part of the tiny minority of the world who was not brainwashed. I alone had access to <laughs> ideas that I was, I was choosing freely and without ideology and that I was specifically choosing novels because they weren't political and they weren't ideological and they weren't tainted by these things. And what I came to realize in my late 30s is that, of course, nothing is free from ideology, that these novels are products of a time and place in history. So what I realized after I came back from Ukraine was, you know, I've already been in this huge rethinking of Anna Karenina and Pushkin's Eugene Onegin because of gender norms. Why would imperialistic norms not be there too? Then I started this project of rereading. And what I found is that it's not that the writers were 
bad or that they approved of these things, but that the writers were a product of empire, the novels were a product of empire. Writing a book is something that takes enormous resources of leisure and money and a whole literary culture to be in conversation with. Without a robust literary culture and robust literary institutions, Pushkin would not have been able to write Eugene Onegin. Pushkin had a fraught relationship with the imperial regime, didn't he? Mm-hmm. So Pushkin, as a very young person, he was exiled from St. Petersburg by the Tsar personally for some poems that he wrote when he was still a teenager. Part of how Pushkin got his start was by sort of adapting Western European romanticism into a Russian context. So he had written these poems. The famous one is an ode to liberty. And Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, like, let us shake off our chains and and Mm -hmm. autocracy is wrong. And the Tsar felt so called out by this that he banished Pushkin from St. Petersburg and he didn't return for another 10 years. And Tsar Nicholas was actually Pushkin's personal censor. You found that he went in line by line. When Pushkin was allowed to return 10 years later, by then there was a new czar. That was Tsar Nikolai. And Tsar Nikolai was Pushkin's personal censor. And when I was in Georgia this summer, I I found a monograph that had been written by a Georgian philologist about Tsar Nikolai's changes to Pushkin's history of the Pugachev rebellion. And he, starting with the title, he rewrote it. He rewrote everything. It was completely bonkers. (laughs) Tell me about Pushkin's poem, The Bronze Horseman. So The Bronze Horseman is a poem that Pushkin writes after he's allowed to return to St. Petersburg. It's now celebrated as a founding canonical text of St. Petersburg about this iconic monument to Peter the Great, which is a bronze horseman by Falconet. I was interested in The Bronze Horseman because part of the backlash against Russian literature in Ukraine in the past year has taken the form of dismantling Pushkin monuments, which are all over the former Soviet Union and certainly all over Ukraine, and there's streets named after Pushkin. So I was thinking about The Bronze Horseman, and I reread it, and the preface starts with Peter the Great looking out at this desolate swamp dotted with the miserable huts that Finnish people built and thinking, from here we can menace Sweden. (laughs) And (laughs) then he builds this imperial capital, which gives Russian naval access to the Baltic Sea and key to Russia becoming a major imperial player in the European balance of power. That's just sort of a little prequel. The rest of the poem is about this bronze monument of Peter coming to life and jumping off his pedestal and terrorizing this clerk to his death. So, you know, reading it, it just occurred to me that Pushkin did not have unmixed feelings about monuments. He didn't have unmixed feelings about empire. And it's not about, like, he loved the czar. It's it's much more complicated than that. Now let's talk about Dostoevsky, who inspired the titles of your books. The murderous protagonist of Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov, is the ultimate dark depiction of Nietzsche's ubermensch, the uh, the man of the future who could rise above conventional Christian morality to impose his own will. Uh, you also see Raskolnikov using the logic of imperialism. The, the logic of the Nietzschean Ubermensch is the logic of imperialism. Those <laughs> things are all connected. They come mm-hmm. up at the same time. Raskolnikov justifies his crime with this argument that most people are ordinary and then there's some people who are extraordinary. And the iconic example of the extraordinary person is Napoleon. These people have the right to kill others for the fulfillment of an idea. And his logic for committing murder is he's a law student and he's penniless and his sister's having to marry this horrible guy and kind of prostitute herself to pay for his studies. So he's going to murder this old woman. She's his landlady and she's also a pawnbroker who he says makes the world worse. Murder her, take all her money and fund his own education. And then he's going to philanthropically spread his largesse and it's going to be a great thing for the world. He talks about Napoleon being this hero who invades Egypt. And if you think about Napoleon, he goes to Egypt, he plunders the treasures, resulting in the death Mm -hmm. of huge numbers of Egyptian people. And then he's celebrated as founding Egyptology, which is already an insane name for a scholarly discipline. So in a world where we're taught that people like that are heroes, Raskolnikov's logic is not really that crazy. He's following something Mm -hmm. to the letter. In Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky doesn't endorse the logic of the ubermensch or of imperialism. And yet, Dostoevsky gives a speech towards the end of his life in the 1880s honoring Pushkin 
many people have drawn a connection between Dostoevsky and Putin because of that speech. He linked Pushkin's universality to the reforms of Peter the Great, who westernized Russia and made Russia competitive with the powers of Western Europe. And he did that through drastically modifying all aspects of Russian life. Dostoevsky says, so what happened in Peter's reforms? Is it just that we adopted European customs and dress and science? No, we actually accomplished this much larger thing, which is we learned how to take the genius of a foreign people into our soul. He said that Russia, like Pushkin, was on a course to, quote, reconcile the contradictions of Europe, thereby fulfilling the word of Christ. There's definitely a Christian bent to a lot of Putin's justifications for his invasion of Ukraine and the battle with the corrupt West. Yeah, so I think this speech is an expression of what people call Dostoevsky's messianism. And Putin definitely also has messianism. You know, I don't know that Putin is the world's most sophisticated reader or analyzer of Russian yes. literature. He just kind of takes what he wants. So Putin didn't invent this, but there's this ideology called Ruski Mir, the Russian world, that started after the fall of the Soviet Union, a philosophy or a movement to maintain the power of the Russian language in what they called the near abroad, you know, places like Ukraine that were now abroad, but that had formerly been part of the Soviet Union. And Putin now invokes the Russian world. He's invoked it to justify his invasion of Georgia and the invasion of Ukraine. And it means the suppression of Ukrainian language and national identity. You can find Dostoevsky's speech quoted on the Ruski Mir website, but at the time he was delivering it, Dostoevsky was met with cheers and weeping and exclamations that he had solved the riddle of Pushkin. Yes, that's right. The war and the necessary and overdue revisitation of Russian classics that it has led to, I really want it not to be an occasion for us to villainize Russian books or to view them as being somehow like Darth Vader vehicles of imperialism. I want to question, what was it about me that I was able to go through this long in life thinking that these books actually were mm. somehow universal and were not political? And I think it's because I had a certain worldview that comes both from U.S. ideology and from Turkish national ideology and that there's two kinds of countries in the world. You know, there's some that are invaded and others that expand. And what Dostoevsky was saying in the Pushkin speech is Russia has this destiny to expand and become universal. And any of these Slavic people who block that, why are they being backwards and provincial and not getting with our great mm -hmm. forward program? And so a year ago, after Russia invaded Ukraine, when a number of Ukrainian literary groups, including Penn Ukraine, signed a petition for a total boycott of books from Russia in the world, that was met with a statement from Penn Germany saying that the enemy is Putin, not Pushkin. Mm -hmm. So if you say the enemy is Putin and not Pushkin, while that is true, inserting literature into this rhetoric of blame and enemies is not productive. To say the enemy is Putin and not Pushkin, to me, implies that Putin and Pushkin have nothing to do with each other. I think elsewhere in that statement, they talked about grouping Pushkin and Putin together as a kind of stereotyping just because they both happen to be Russian. And I think that that argument is counterproductive. It's infuriating to Ukrainian people. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of gaslighting to say that these things aren't connected because, of course, they're connected. Pushkin was a product of the Russian empire, and Putin's ideology owes so much to imperial expansion. None of this is Pushkin's fault, but they're both expressing an expansionist agenda. And it's very important to look at Pushkin's work, to look at the role of expansionism, to look at how he felt about these things and the very ambivalent and ambiguous way he treats expansionism. Gogol's The Nose. Now, he's regarded as a Russian writer by the Russians. He wrote in Russian, but he was born in Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. He was born in Ukraine and he spoke Ukrainian with his mother. And it was really a decision for him to write in Russian. 
He moved to St. Petersburg. That's where he first achieved literary fame. And it was for writing in Russian on Ukrainian subjects and Ukrainian themes, and also incorporating some aspects of Ukrainian vernacular into his writing. And he became famous as like, you know, the critics of St. Petersburg were like, look at this young guy out of Ukraine writing these provincial hilarious sketches. But it's time for him to set aside the provinces and start writing about more universal themes. And he comes to Petersburg and switches to Russian themes. He writes the Petersburg stories and dead souls. I don't know if he did Russian official to many favor with the, with those books. I mean, dead souls is the er example of corruption and bureaucratic malfeasance. Yeah, absolutely. It was very ambiguously received and a super ambiguous book. All these great books are quite ambiguous. And with regard to The Nose? So The Nose is this famous story about a civil servant who wakes up one morning and his his nose is missing. He's a civil servant who's reached his degree of rank by serving in the caucuses in the colonies there. And now he's come to Petersburg to try to get a promotion and to try to get married. And now he doesn't have a nose. And he's like, how am I going to get married? How am I going to impress my superiors? So he runs out and starts looking for his nose. And then he sees a carriage pull up in front of a building and an imposing figure gets out and it's his own nose. And the nose is wearing a uniform of a higher ranking civil servant than he is. And he confronts the nose and says, you know, sir, don't, you know, excuse me, you are my nose. And the nose says, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? Yeah, you're, you're mistaken. I am a person in my own right. And rereading that, I just thought Kavalyov, the civil servant, his attitude towards his nose is so similar to the, you know, great Russian attitude toward Ukraine, which is how dare this little appendage go off by itself. And then just as Ukraine is saying, I'm my own country, the nose is saying, no, I'm a person in my own right. And actually, as in so many of these works, the interests of empire prevail. And at the end of the story, the civil servant gets his nose back. The police bring it to his house and they say, oh, we caught it. This nose was about to board the stagecoach to Riga, <laughs> which is also interesting because you find out the nose was trying to go west. <laughs> this trip you took to Ukraine, having written two books with Dostoevsky titles, is there a way to sum up what you were left with, with this argument, this discussion, and also the incredible passion for books. The place that I came out is that it was sort of a journey of thinking like the best novels enable us to see more than the writer saw at the time. So mm -hmm. I think it's sort of an act of generosity or imagination that we can do as readers is to put all of Dostoevsky in context with the best Dostoevsky because we're not all our best selves. Certainly we're not our best ideological selves all the time. The Ukrainians they're just steeped in trauma right now. And so some of them right now, they can't give Dostoevsky a pass. Yeah, and nobody should read something that's going to cause them pain. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Elif Bauterman's latest novel is called Either Or. And that's the show this week. On the Media is produced by Michael Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candace Wong, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Tammy George. Our technical directors, Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Andrew Nerviano, Sham Sandra, Jason Isaac, and Dave Satkowski. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.